Good morning. Welcome. If you're new here among us, my name is Gene, and I serve here at C3 Church as your lead pastor. And I wonder if there's anyone else here like me, in this sense, where, as a kid, you weren't just allowed to go and take whatever you wanted out of the fridge during the day, right? You're going to ruin your appetite. So we got three square meals a day, and if, if you finished all of your supper, even if it was gross stew, if, then, <laughs> what? Then you could have dessert. You could have a snack, like a small bowl of ice cream or potato chips or something like that. You got your treat. Now, there weren't a whole lot of snacks in my house growing up, so if you decided to sneak some of that stuff, you got caught. That was it. Only two kids in my house, so there were only two possibilities, right? Not good, and you get in a lot of trouble for doing it. So here was the key. Keep it out of the house. If it's not good for you, keep it out of the house. No temptations. Now, my dad liked to snack a lot. So he found a workaround. Not in the house, but surprisingly, in the grocery store. <laughs> my dad would sample. Now, I don't know if you remember this. I might be dating myself, but that's okay. They used to have these barrels in the grocery store, giant barrels, and they were as tall as me at this time, filled with candy. And you could get, like, the shovel, and you could scoop it, and it's a price per pound. You don't care. You put it in the bag, and you mix and match sometimes. It's very exciting. Well, one quick thing. <laughs> grocery clerks out there everywhere. I need to tell you something. You need to do your job because they're not actually filled all the way up with candy. It's just a bowl, like a false bottom type of thing. And if you don't fill them up regularly, you will crush a child's dreams. <laughs> so just a side note here. So I thought they were filled up all the way with candy or endless possibilities. My dad would walk up to one of these barrels and he would sample, but he had a routine. It was very convincing. He'd make a face like he was really thinking about it. But this is a serious investment, so I'm going to have to think about it as I walk around the entire grocery store. <laughs> and then come back and let's consider this purchase again. And this would continue again and again. If I followed him, he would give me a piece to shut me up. And this went on and on. So I started thinking a lot about this. Shouldn't this apply to all the food in the grocery store? Like potato chips. So I went on on my own in the potato chip aisle, and I noticed there were no sample bags available. Grocery clerk not doing his job, so I made one. I opened a bag up and decided to sample. And I followed my dad's routine. I started walking around the grocery store, but unlike the everlasting gobstopper, the potato chip was gone pretty much as soon as I left the aisle. That was a problem. Long walk for a potato chip. So I decided to improve on my father's method. I just walked around the aisle. But even this seemed to take too long. So I confined myself to that spot, just kind of breakdancing around as I took potato chips. Well, 
This will get you caught, especially if the grocery clerk is right there next to you while you're doing this whole thing. And so he said, what are you doing? I said, sampling. What do you think? He must be new. He goes, no, you're stealing. I was like, oh, new guy. Listen, stealing is if I take the bag and remove it from the store without paying for it. That's stealing. The chips have not left the store. And if you're still not convinced, I'll go to the bathroom before I leave and leave the chips here in the store. He didn't like any of that. <laughs> he did not like that answer. So back in the day when you were allowed to do such things, he grabbed me by like the coat or the scruff of the neck and dragged me to my parents. Is this your kid? They lied with their faces. But with their mouths, they admitted it. Yes, that's my kid. He's been stealing potato chips. That's where I stopped him again. Dad, you need to explain this to him. He's new. It's called sampling. You, no, <laughs> shut up. I'll take care of him when we get home. And he promptly dragged me out of there. So today, we'll see that kids, indeed, they learn from our behavior. And it has consequences. Today, we find ourselves in the rest of the story. We've been looking at the life of Solomon and the writings attributed to Solomon as well. We were in Ecclesiastes, Wisdom of Solomon. We saw a lot of advice. We've also noticed that sometimes Solomon doesn't take his own advice all the time or always lead by example. Going back to this section, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Kings 11 today. But in 1 Kings 10, we saw that especially regarding the Queen of Sheba, that Solomon was accepting a lot of gifts, a lot of flattery, like 25 tons of gold, a lot. Here in 1 Kings 11, we're going to look at the end of Solomon's reign. We'll jump right into the text. 1 Kings 11, starting at verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter. He married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts away to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. What I'm doing right now is restraining myself. That's what that looks like. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, and his father. Dave, his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil. In the Lord's sight, he refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Got to be a little bit of hyperbole there. So these marriages may have been very expedient type of political marriages, but it doesn't excuse it, nor does it excuse the fact that he was worshiping other Gods. If we keep reading the text, we see that it's really, really, really bad. Molech is a god associated with sacrificing children. Really bad. So he's doing some of this worship. He's doing it. The women are doing it. Some of this worship at sacred places like the Mount of Olives. Those of you who know the Bible well know that's bad. Really bad stuff. So God appears to him a third time. 
1 Kings 11.9. The Lord was very angry with Solomon for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, Since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father David, I will not do this while you're still alive. I'll take the kingdom away from your son. And even so, I will not take the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. So, here we see that sometimes what parents do have consequences for the children, and this is one of those cases. So here's what happens. God builds up adversaries to fight against Solomon. First, Hadad, then reason, then Jeroboam. We get to a very important part of the story. So Solomon is at a point where he's rebuilding terraces and parts of the walls. He's doing construction projects all the time. And this guy Jeroboam is a really capable worker. So he puts him in charge of Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are Joseph's sons, those tribes. He's good at it. But God is going to use him in a similar way to the way he used David against Saul. It'll get interesting. First, the prophet Ahijah appears on the scene. He meets Jeroboam in a field. They're alone. He has a nice cloak on. He takes the cloak off. Prophets do crazy things to symbolize stuff. And what he does is he tears the cloak into 12 pieces. They represent 12 tribes of Israel. He gives 10 of the pieces to Jeroboam. And he said, God is going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon, like I've torn this cloak He's going to give you 10 of these tribes, but Solomon is going to keep one for the sake of David. He's going to remember him, and his family is going to rule in Jerusalem, Judah. Now, if you're good at math, you're saying, what happened to the other tribe? It's pretty simple if you read the Bible a lot. The tribe of Levi, they're the priests. They don't get their own share of the land. The people are supposed to take care of the priests. And so probably that also, if you read the text carefully, the tribe of Benjamin is always associated in Judah. They kind of hang out in Judah a lot down there. So that's what it is. So Solomon's going to be in charge of technically one Judah, but three tribes. The temple is there in Jerusalem. So this is all stated prophetically, the demise of Solomon. Now, it's bad. Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam. And so this is a very sad, like a pitiful kind of ending like Saul was. If you remember, he tried to kill David. He knew that David was going to take, take over. So he's behaving the same way now. So it's a really sad ending to an otherwise glorious and prosperous reign. So the worship of idols, that's what it's all about as you read the Bible, leads to their downfall. So the women led to the idols to the downfall. So here we see the text kind of converges again. If you're new, we've been talking about how some of the books of the Bible run in parallel. It's the same story from a different author, a different angle, gives us some different details. 
Those details were not in 2 Chronicles, but now the end of his reign is there. So we'll look at both of them, 1 Kings 11.41. The rest of the events in Solomon's reign, including all his deeds and his wisdom, are recorded in the book of the Acts of Solomon. Solomon ruled in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. When he died, he was buried in the city of David named for his father. Then his son, Rehoboam, became the next king. So we've got the holidays coming up, Christmas coming up. That won't be next week. It'll be the week after. Now, you can see 2 Chronicles is really similar, but we got more books. And this is another example. If you know the word really well, you know those aren't in my Bible. There are other books, like the one we looked at last week, except we don't have these. They're gone. Now, before I continue on to how this applies to us, aside from eating too much candy and stealing chips in the grocery store, there's kind of an elephant in the room if you've been paying attention. And so I'm going to address it. If you remember Heather, when we were in Proverbs, said that they were written, most of them, King Solomon to his son. Singular. It's not plural there. Rehoboam. We're going to see what happens to him. Now, if you're really observant and you read the word a lot, You'll notice that in 1 Kings 4, in passing, it's hard to catch, when he's talking about all his officials, he has two daughters. Just mentions them in passing. They're married to his officials. He's sleeping with 1,000 women and only has three kids. What kind of birth control was he using? <laughs> Okay, now that we're beyond that, <laughs> you shouldn't speculate. A lot of people will be like, no, no, he probably had 100 kids. The Word of God only wants us to know that he has three kids, and so that's it. We don't speculate here. It's, no, that's what it wants us to know. We shouldn't know more. Anyway, interesting. <laughs> I got to get over that. So here's the thing. What caused his downfall? Well, I already answered that question, but we're going to look at it. So Deuteronomy and the law... It gave him the reason he shouldn't be doing that. We looked at this briefly a few weeks ago. We'll look at it again. Deuteronomy 7.3. You must not intermarry with them, these foreign women's, women. Women's. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But if you remember, that is not the only problem. If we hop over to Deuteronomy 17:16, the king, so if you want a king someday, here's the context, this is the law of Moses, the Israelites, if you want a king someday, great, I'm going to give you some instructions. If I'm not good enough, basically, is what he's saying, God. Deuteronomy 17:16, the king must not build a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses, for the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Have you been reading? 12,000 horses Solomon has. Okay. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord, and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver or gold for himself, like 25 tons a year. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it 
daily as long as he lives. That way, he will learn to fear the Lord. We've been talking about that. His God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud, never a good thing in the Bible, and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way, and it will ensure that he and all his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. Solomon broke every single one of them in a big way. A big, big way. 25 tons of gold. Not to mention like the 9,000 pounds Sheba gives him, Hiram gives him the same amount. Tons of gold. So he has so much silver, the Bible says, that it was worthless in Solomon's day. He went nuts. 12,000 horses off the charts. Also, he's either not in the Word or he's definitely not obeying it. So, downfall. Not being in the Word, not listening to God, and obeying it as well. Surrounding yourself with temptations, keeping things around us that are going to cause us to sin. There's a context here. We're not under the law of Moses anymore, and I don't think anybody in here is a king, right? But there's a context. Foreign women in his case. But in our case, keeping things around us that are going to lead us astray. So this is the beginning of the downfall of the entire kingdom. It will lead to the destruction of the temple that he built. Everything gets destroyed. Seventy years in exile for the people. Horrible, horrible punishment. So if we fast forward about 480-ish years... So what's going to happen is they're going to get put in exile. Then, after seven years in exile, they're going to come back. So you have Ezra, Nehemiah, King Cyrus. Okay, Persians take over the Babylonians. They come back. And so when we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, it used to be a set, two books put together. We notice something. He comes back. Nehemiah is really like a governor, and he's there to help him build the walls. That's what he's there for. Ezra's the priest. So... He's rebuilding the walls, and towards the end of the book, he notices something, that these people, too, have married foreign brides. And so back then, in that context, it's a bad thing. Nehemiah makes note of something. Nehemiah 13, 26. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? I demanded. It's in Nehemiah's voice. There was no king from any nation who could compare to him, and God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? Even Solomon was led astray. He's pointing to the beginning of this downfall. Now, in our case, especially if we're not a king of Israel, it may not be foreign women leading us astray. But in our lives, are there things that we're lusting after 
that are turning our hearts from the Lord. As God warned Solomon, Jesus also warned us in parables, Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, parable of the sower. It says it's the initiation of the parables, and from that point, he doesn't teach in anything except parables, and he doesn't like to explain himself to normal people. So having eyes, they do not see, Isaiah, ears, they do not hear, it's prophetic. He explains it on the side to his disciples. So the parable of the sower goes kind of like this. There's a farmer scattering seed. Some of that seed lands on pavement, rocks, and then immediately a bird comes down and takes the seed. Some of the seed lands on eh, not so good soil, rocky soil, so it can't get a good root, so when it comes up it gets scorched, burned. Some of the seed lands among the thorn bushes and stuff, and because it has all this stuff crowding around it, it can't reach its potential, it can't grow up. Some of that seed lands on fertile soil. That seed gets a good root, produces fruit 30, 60, 100 times as much. Disciples, what does it mean? Let me tell you. And you got to get this part right. I've seen a lot of people, actually famous people too, get this wrong, but the Word tells us what it is. Jesus explains, the seed is the Word of God. The seed is the Word of God. The soil types are like us, depending on what state of reception that we're in. So the seed falls on rocks, doesn't get in there. And so Satan's the bird that comes and takes it away. Some seed, eh, they're kind of into it. They're like the Sunday to Sunday Christians. Nope, get scorched. Jesus says that for a reason. It's supposed to make you think of something. And what about the seed that lands among the thorns? Well, he tells us, Mark 4, 18, the seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things. So no fruit is produced. Then, the nice fertile soil, good root, Word is really deep in there, and so fruit 30, 60, 100 times. We get the point. We must have the Word of God planted firmly in us. Did you notice? First three are failures. Failures. There's no like both. Jesus gives one option, it's the fourth option. That's it. The Word of God must be firmly, firmly rooted in us without the temptations or distractions of this world. There isn't another option. Solomon, he had the Word, clearly, and he was warned by God. He even reiterated those things in his writings. Amazing! He was wise, but even Solomon, even Solomon had his heart turned away from the Lord. Even Solomon, he had it all going for him. Amazing. Even the temptations got him. 
On the women again, do you think, now we don't speculate a lot here, but just for a moment, indulge me. Do you think any of Solomon's wives got jealous? Do you think they got jealous? Do you think he had that problem? If I'm looking at it from the outside and I'm thinking Solomon is creating an environment that is ripe, a garden that is ripe for jealousy. Don't you think? Was there bickering going on between the women? How do you think they felt? I don't know. Maybe it's like Esther. 12 months of beauty treatments? Fine. (laughs) Send me to the spa for a while. Now, here's the thing. Maybe we don't have as many wives (laughs) as Solomon. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I hope not. Better better not. Preach it, Lonnie. Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to speak for the women, because I'm not a woman. Husbands, do we create an environment? Now, women, you can just take the application. I'm just going to speak for myself because I know what's good for me. Do we create an environment that creates jealousy? Do we do that? Perhaps we flirt a little bit with a woman we like. Perhaps we oogle over movie stars on the TV. You're probably thinking, oh, come on. (laughs) Seems innocent, right? There's something some couples do. We haven't done this, and I'll explain to you why in a moment. It's not what you think. And I had to check this because it's like a pop culture thing. Apparently, it's called a hall pass. He's like, he's really going to talk about the hall pass. Yes, I saw it on TV, right? So it's like the celebrity pass. Here's the premise. We're married, and if you run into that movie star, you get to sleep with that movie star. That's the hall pass, right? It's a hall pass, celebrity pass. Somebody nod their head, getting scared. So anyway, it's a thing. I saw it on Friends. So anyway, (laughs) it's like a hall pass. You get something like that. Whatever. And it works, kind of, because here's the thing. You're never going to run into that celebrity, and even if you do, they don't want you. (laughs) And that's the thing, right? You're just not that beautiful. So so it works, right? So you're like, it's never going to happen. Now, here's the reason my wife and I never did that. If you know my story, you know I knew a lot of famous people, so it could definitely happen. So we never did that. That was the real reason. Or was it? (laughs) Here's the thing about it. Now I got you laughing. I'm going to ruin it. It's actually very harmful. It's actually very harmful. Because there's truth in jest. There's truth in jest. And what it actually says, you're not good enough. If I run into a woman that looks like that, you're out. You're done. I'm going to leave you home so you can watch one of their movies while I'm sleeping with her. It's not innocent. It's hurtful. It says you're not good enough. And even in jest, that's not okay. These things seem innocent. Start small. All sin does on that slippery, just small, a flirt, 
just going to talk to her a little bit. Just going to oogle a little bit. I'm going to make a little hall pass joke. But then it gets bigger and bigger. And here's the other thing. What if your spouse took you up on it? Would it be innocent then? What if, Heather brought up this point. It's a good one. What if you found someone who just kind of happened to look a lot like that celebrity? Does that count? Would it be cool the other way around? Would it be innocent then? Ah, Gene, it's just imaginary. Stop spoiling my fun. Because sin is fun, isn't it? But it's still hurtful. And it usually leads to something wrong. One small step at a time into bigger sin until the bigger sin doesn't look so big anymore. But it's just imaginary. You know what else isn't imaginary? We may not be kings. We may not have access to 1,000 women. We kind of do, though. Right on our phone. Thousands and thousands of women right on our phones. Nowadays, you don't need to be a king to have access to that many women. And women, men, again, I'm staying in my lane. I'm not a woman, so I don't know what you do. But maybe. I don't know. And what Jesus teaches about that applies here too, because guess what? It's not imaginary. It's not imaginary. And like Solomon, these women will turn your hearts away from the Lord. Now, if you are accessing these women, you may think, and this is what I've heard, it's a victimless crime. And that's what I've heard. I'm not hurting anyone but yourself. It's not. First of all, if you're doing that, you're supporting a very evil thing. You're supporting it, a very evil thing, and think, oh, I didn't pay for it. You got another like or a view. They monetize those, you know. Here's the other thing. What if that woman was your daughter? What if that woman was your sister or your niece? Is it still victimless now? Jesus says it's not victimless. Matthew 5.27, he is speaking. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, his standard is higher, notice. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says that even looking at a woman with lust is adultery. Those women have turned your heart away from the Lord. You cannot have it both ways. You are either in love with the Lord or in lust with those women. There's nothing in the middle. Mutually exclusive. It's the motive that matters. So now, the other thing here is, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that if you're leading others or you're parenting or you're whatever, 
I'm hoping that you're not telling others that this is okay. I'm hoping that you're not saying, that's okay, go do that. Or I don't do that, but you shouldn't do that. So if you are doing that, how are you following your own advice? There's a word for that. Hypocrite. We hate that word. Probably because a lot of people are guilty of it. We don't like that, being called out. Hypocrite bothers us. The word just bothers us coming out of our mouths. I don't even like saying it. There were some things that bothered Jesus. Hypocrisy was like right about at the top of his list. He hated it. Now, here's the thing. It's a big word, but I think we all understand what it means. It means we're saying one thing, teaching people to do one thing, and then doing another, probably when they're not looking. That's the simple form of it. If we get to Matthew 23, it's a very famous chapter because it's the seven woes. They don't like reading that in church a whole lot because it doesn't make anybody feel good, but that's not Jesus' point here in 23, 24, or 25. It's a hard read. Woes to the religious leaders. He's basically saying, don't follow these people because they say one thing, teach one thing, and then do another. And he continues, Matthew 23, 13, What sorrow, woe to you, awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others in either. What sorrow, woe to you, awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. Don't follow this type of leader, is what Jesus is saying, but condemns them. And also, in our wanderings, we have the ability to lead others astray. And if you know the word well, Mark 9, for example, Jesus gives some very serious warnings about that, what happens to people. Remember the millstone being tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. We're actually called to live this out by example. The advice we give, we are to live it out by example. And I will tell you, as evidence of our salvation, as evidence of our salvation. I talked about something a lot of Christians don't know, these popular teachings, wrong, fear appears 365 in the Bible, fear not, nope, nope, maybe 100 times. It says more, fear the Lord, and that was the key we learned to not sinning so much. The nanny cam is always there. There's no safe place we can go that God won't see it. There's nothing in secret. And we will be judged for it. That's another popular teaching Christians will say. They'll espouse this. Well, you're not going to be judged. You're good. No. If you're going and doing all those things, there's no evidence that you're going to be saved. That's what the Word says. There's another thing. People, God will judge us. It says this. I'll give you all the scriptures if you want them. We can go through it again. Christians. Judgment begins with us, says in Peter. Begins with us. 
But guess what? People are always judging us by our fruit. We're the only Bible a lot of people see. That's a correct one that's pretty popular. But unfortunately, people don't like following that one. People will decide whether they are going to become Christians or not. And if you're a Christian, I'm going to say this, based on your behavior. That's it. They'll make the decision. Maybe you're wearing a cross. Maybe you're praying. Maybe you got the Jesus fish on the car. But the answer is often, well, I'll just take the cross off. I'll take the fish. Then you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Why then? What's the motive? So I can do whatever I want. What? No. Keep the fish on there. Change your behavior. That's what you're supposed to do. They know we're Christians, and when they find out and we treat them like garbage, they go, I don't want to be a Christian. Heather, my wife, she'll tell you. I'm not going to say who she was watching, close relative. I'm a Christian. I'm the church lady. I do everything. It's like, if that's what a Christian looks like, I never want to be one. Never. Greedy with money. Charging their children interest on loans, not speaking to them, whatever it is. Really? If that's a Christian, count me out. You don't have to do a lot to chase people away. And I would assert, and I think there are a lot of you here that are getting sick of it too, I would assert that Christians are doing a much better job at chasing people away from the faith than bringing people in. Right? If you're on that side of the aisle, you can't get in. And I'm going to make that the most important thing to talk about in the whole world. But Jesus. Check this out. Not a popular portion of Scripture. 2 Peter 1.10. So, all that, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove. Work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Did you know the Bible said that? New Testament. So dear brothers and sisters, work hard. Work hard. Not hardly work at this. Work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. Do these things and then you will never fall away. Then, then... God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how? Steps of obedience. So if we look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where we were, Jesus will continue. And he'll say, Matthew, at 5.29, he didn't say Matthew. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus talks about hell a lot, doesn't he? And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into, there it is again, hell. Now, clearly, this is not literal. It's called hyperbole. But Jesus is doing it to get your attention. We're not literally, don't go and cut your hand off, please, when you go home. Not literal. But his point is, what he says about the consequences, that is dead serious. 
It is dead serious. So here's the thing. We need to get rid of the temptations. Don't pull your eye out, but get rid of the things your eye is looking at. Keep it out of the house. Good advice. Keep it out of the house. That's it. We need to keep it off the phone. Practical steps. Why do you have that app or that thing or whatever it is? Why do you have it there anyway? And this extends itself to other sin. When I want to really just spend time with the Lord, take a Sabbath, a little note comes up in my phone. I'm giving you help, practical steps. Don't check Facebook. Because a lot of people that I know they are claiming to be Christians, they're just not on there. And it makes me really angry because my job is to try to bring people into the faith through love. Gave you like the, the cheap, I'm not going to name the chain, right? The, the, the gym, you know, where like people just get the little keychain thing just to say they go to the gym. They go a couple times. Nobody gets in shape because it's like there's no good trainers there or anything. But they give people shirts, right? So like take the shirt off, you're embarrassing me. It's not good for the brand. Well, if Christianity is a brand, these people are not good for the brand. I used to say this when I owned a gym, the fighters. Before a fighter got up, okay, we're going to do it. You know what I would say to them? Don't embarrass me. <laughs> it was kind of mean, but funny. Don't embarrass me. I kind of feel like this is what Jesus is saying. You're embarrassing me. feels like that as a pastor. So I open up Facebook only on work days because it's work. You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing me. Some of you are good, though, posting scriptures. Good job. But just stop doing it out of context. You cannot do all things applied to your football game. You're annoying. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> but I take it off my phone. I'm like, this is going to... So it's not just things like the women or sex. stuff. It could be that, right? But it's things that are going to tempt you to unnecessary anger. So ask yourself, why do you have it there? Why are you playing with that fire? Get rid of it. Take it off the phone. If it's a person at work, quit your job. There's a lot of... There's a worker shortage, okay, people? Don't tell me you need that job. It's not the only job in the world. If there's someone at work that's capturing your heart, quit. Because the Lord is far more important than your career. Just being real. We may have had things that have turned our hearts away from the Lord, but we need to turn from them in repentance and turn back to the Lord. It's not over, people, if you've done it. You still got a chance. Come back to Jesus. We need to fall out of lust with the world and in love with the Lord. Jesus tells us how we know if we love him and we are in him. In a lot of places, but here, John 14, 21, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each one of them. If we turn the page, John 15, 10, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commands and remain in his love. 
Jesus is our ultimate example. We must look to him. We must abide in him all of the time. All of the time. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this day, this church that is your body, the body of Christ. Strengthen us, Lord. Turn our hearts back to you. If we've been doing something wrong, going down the wrong road, turn our hearts back to you by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, fill us, strengthen us, empower us. Give us the desire to love you completely. I ask this in Jesus' name.